Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the very next episode of the official Art of Fighting DS podcast. This evening, I am your incompetent host, Sub Messenger. We have starring JNP. Good evening. And a very special guest who is an up and coming but already accomplished author of Swing Are American Elections Legitimate, as well as other great titles. <laughs> Rebecca Little. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. And that was uh, sort of a, a flubbed up intro, so if you wanted to add anything to your CV, please go ahead and do so now, or you can do so later in podcast, if you would so um, wish. Okay. Uh, yes, um, I am an occasional author, a professional ghostwriter, and I guess all-around wordsmith, word slut. Um, not so much a word slut as I was at the beginning of my ghostwriting career, because then it was like, I will write anything. I will write your dating site profile. I will write your shitty article. I will write your, like, biography, whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's a wordsmith. I got my start ghostwriting, because um, it was, like, during the recession or shortly thereafter. Um, I just graduated college, and I ended up drunkenly getting an internship at a dinosaur quarry in Utah and just kind of went for it. And from there, I ended up living in this woman, Carrie's basement, who was um, running this, like, romance novel publishing company, and I ended up, and I ended up taking on some ghostwriting projects for her and um, doing some editing for some of the people that she was working with. And um, that's kind of how I got into ghostwriting. It was, like, between that and Craigslist and then, like it kind of spiraled into, you you know, when you, like, come up for air, like, five years later, and you're like, whoa, I've got a career. <laughs> That's so, cool. It, cool. It was story. cool. Mm-hmm. You're like, you need to be working on your memoirs already. Oh, God. <laughs> That's what fiction's for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I was just going to say, let's talk about, um, touch on a few things from the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know one of the things that really um, stood out was the, you know, the Democratic uh, primaries before first mm-hmm. uh, kind of. Um, well, no, first you should let's let's talk about like an overall synopsis of the book. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an overall synopsis of the book? Um, yeah, Swing, um, Are U- American Elections Legitimate, uh, basically explores the question, are U.S. elections legitimate? And uh, my co-author, Bob Petrakis, he's um, an election protection attorney and a professor and um, a really accomplished like law practitioner, and he's even um, run for office as a Green Party candidate several times. But um, he was very much involved with the recount uh, following the 2004 presidential election, specifically. Um, looking at what happened in Ohio, which was a fucking disaster. And then um, he did a lot of um, 
election protection activism and litigation in the 2008 and 2012 election. And then for the 2016 election, he was uh, Jill Stein's recount litigation attorney. So basically what we did is uh, he's got like 20 years worth of work in writing and um, I can write really fast. And um, one of the things that I've honed in on as a ghostwriter is helping people who are experts in their field communicate with a broader audience because a lot of the times an expert doesn't really know how much they know that isn't like, you know, that isn't common knowledge, you know? So, um, plus it was, uh, around the beginning of January when we decided, um, well, when his publisher decided they needed a book by Super Tuesday. So there was like seven weeks to write this book and I write really fast. So, um, basically it's a lot of the history of, election theft and the election industrial complex and how, um, you know, just how much opportunity there is for corruption within uh, the election framework and um, the history of basically what happened to make the election, uh, what we call it the election industrial complex, kind of a closed system of accountability. And uh, that means um, you've got secretaries of state who run uh, state elections that also are co-chairs of, you know, one of the campaigns, one of the campaigns. Um, you've got um, software that records and tabulates the votes. That's proprietary software and can't be viewed. Um, you've got partisan secretaries of state. Um, kicking people off voter registration rolls. You've got precincts getting closed down, misinformation about where to go to vote, which is where you get like long lines and chaotic election days. Um, and uh, you've got people with partisan ties giving the contracts to those who essentially control the vote count. And it's a, it's a clusterfuck. And the answer that we came to is no, U.S. elections aren't legitimate. And it's a problem and that there are solutions. And um, if we held ourselves to the standards that we use by which to um, justify whether we should intervene in foreign elections because they're illegitimate on ourselves, we would be fucked. So that's what the book's about. And um, it was interesting coming into it with no background whatsoever on election theft or election protection activism and, um, Kind of always figured there was some shady shit going on, but just seeing the depth of it and just the blatant, um, I guess just like the, the boldness, the audacity <laughs> was kind of shocking. And, um, you know, I was just reading it over again over the past couple days and um, some other research to prepare for this interview. And I found myself just getting really upset. <laughs> and um, my partner had to like, come in and kind of, he was like, oh, you're pissed off about something. <laughs> like, this is so wrong. So that's kind of, that's where I'm at with it. And that's what the book's about. Awesome. And, um, yep. So we also want to make sure we mention again that um, Bob Pitrakis, <clears throat> did I say his name right? Pitrakis. Pitrakis, pardon me, Bob. Mm -hmm. um, you know, was a, a huge part of this. And, and there were some other mm -hmm. contributing authors, as I understand it, based on the kind of looking over the end notes. Um, yeah. But, yeah, uh, Harvey Wasserman, who's a writing partner of Bob's, a lot of this was influenced by the work that they did together, and also Jerry Bello, who is also um, 
a research partner and a writing partner and overall accomplice of Bob. So. All right. <clears throat> so circling back, um, let's touch on the Democratic um, primaries before the virus. I, that was the first point I wanted to bring up, but before I remember, hey, yeah. overview. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, yeah, so we, um, the, the goal was to get the book out by Super Tuesday. That didn't quite work out. It came out slightly after Super Tuesday. But, um, yeah, I mean, what we saw right from Iowa caucus was, like, classic election theft where there was this um, app introduced. So, like, the first step to stealing an election is voter suppression. The last step is to make sure that the results are so crazy obscured that the media gets to pick the winner because there's no fucking way to prove who actually won the election. And we saw that so much with Iowa. Like, we saw this new app introduced by Shadow Inc., which was discovered to have been funded by Mayor Pete, who did uh, really mysteriously well in that election. And, um, you know, we saw a lot of confusion. We saw confused numbers. Right. What? Yeah, yeah, Mayor Who was involved in some possibly intelligence activity in the Middle East when he was in the military? Yes. Okay. Um, (laughs) Please continue. That's sketchy little shit. Um, Please continue. Yes, but, uh, yeah, so I thought the interest, well, not the interesting thing, but we're watching it unfold, and um, then Bernie Sanders comes in with his lawyers, and he's like, hey, y'all, we got an app, too, and we're keeping track of the vote count, and then, like, watching the DNC totally, like, scrap their results and have to, like, shuffle to finish it, and, um, I mean, do we even have clear results of who, how that all broke down? It got, I mean, it, it got crazy. So, you know, you see um, electronic tampering, um, a purposefully confused, um, purposefully confused results. Um, and then you, you know, seeing him come in with strategic litigation was really interesting because that's um, in the book we discuss uh, the 2012 election, how strategic litigation that put um, U.S. Marshall and like invest- federal investigation eyes on the Secretary of State's office in the swing states on the night of the election is what kept it honest um, and stopped um, vote count tampering. So I thought it was really interesting that Bernie Sanders used strategic litigation to stop the Iowa primary from getting stolen from him. Um, but yeah, and then I'm looking, took some notes. Um I guess the, the general rule of thumb that we discovered is the Democrats rig the primaries uh, or tamper with the primaries and the Republicans tamper with the general election, um, or at least that's what we've seen since 2000. Um, but the big way to see whether there's been um, funny business going on is looking at the exit polls versus the total uh, vote count. And if there's like more than a 1% or so variance, you're basically in a situation where people who are being polled coming out of the poll booths who think they have voted and, like, report to you what they voted, they, they didn't actually vote. So you get election tampering because you get people that think that they voted that's votes weren't counted. Um, and in Texas, uh, we got a 4% discrepancy. Vermont, uh, 6.3%. South Carolina was 1.4. The interesting thing about South Carolina is 52 precincts were closed in the state's biggest county, Greenville, without notice. So that 
is in itself an act of voter suppression because it makes it unclear where to go. Um, it makes lines longer by hoarding or putting everyone into one place. So people who have to get back to work or back to childcare or back to school can't stand in those long lines to cast votes. Um, and then... So that's yeah. very interesting, something that you said, um, where, okay, so for me personally, uh, I'm an IT guy, I'm a hacker, Mm-hmm. a programmer, right? And mm-hmm. so many years ago, there was this competition online. Mm-hmm. And, it, well, the competition happens every year. But, so, and I may be going way out on a tangent here, but let me just explain. So the competition is called the International um, C Code Obfuscation Contest. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so it's like, can I write a program that is so confusing that people can't understand what it does? Uh-huh. And one year, I want to say it was like uh, maybe like 2004, 2005. I mean, it feels like it was kind of coincidental to an election year. Um, so it would be like early 2000s, probably. Mm-hmm. The contest was, can you rig... A voting system uh-huh. in such a way that forensic analysis would have a really hard time figuring out what happened. So right? does like the CIA fund this competition or what? No, this is this is like international open source free, cool. like anyone can participate in it. Um, mm-hmm. so anyway, cool. thinking about that and about something that you just said, it kind of um, triggered something in my head uh, mm-hmm. as so as a uh, quote-unquote hacker. So uh, as a security professional, what we look at is uh, what we call vectors. And vectors mm-hmm. are ways to um, defeat the system. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I thought was interesting in what you said was here's a potential vector that hasn't really maybe been um uh used yet and that is to have people go in and not vote and then take the exit polls exactly so is that kind of uh, what you were saying because i kind of thought what you were saying was the opposite yeah, no people going in that cast ballots that don't get counted or get thrown out. Or um, a big thing with um, electronic voting machines, um, something that we saw a lot in 2004 is because it's proprietary source code and because the people that write the source code and um, make these machines have partisan ties. Um, there were a lot of instances, especially in Ohio in 2004, where like um, the votes were hopping, so they'd like push one name and it would like the other would light up and it got reported over and over and over again or they would like push one button and it would fade out but then you've got like um in like in pennsylvania for example they've got really old voting machines that don't have a paper trail and the thing is a lot of these machines don't have a paper trail which is fucking ridiculous because like every cash register has a receipt right and um so you get these people voting and their votes either like don't get tabulated or read correctly by the, the Scantron machine. Um, there's also this program called Fraction Magic, which can fractionalize votes. And again, like the source code's proprietary. So the algorithm, or I don't know if it's the algorithm, I'm not, <laughs> I don't know the words, but um, 
you know, they, they can pre-program to count fractional uh, votes or, like, add. Like, like three-fifths. Yeah, exactly. Like, three-fifths. 100% like three-fifths. Um, but, yeah, you get these situations where people go in and fill out the ballot, submit it, think they voted, come out, report to the exit poll takers, but their vote's not counted. Um, there's other instances where the ballots aren't sealed correctly or, like, the chain of custody is broken, like we saw in Michigan in 2016. Um, you know, ballots left on tables, uh, ballots with security seals broken, like someone just went through them and opened them. Um, in North Carolina, where I live right now, I mean, there was um, a couple years back where that entire building filled with uh, uncounted ballots was burned to the ground. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways that people who think they've cast ballots haven't actually gotten their votes counted. So I'm not actually talking about people that think that they cast the ballot. Uh-huh. I'm talking about oh. the, the sort of the opposite of that, where you're, you're standing in line, you stand in line, you stand in line, you finally mm -hmm. get in there, right? You go uh -huh. up to the people and you're like, ah, oh, never mind. Then you walk out. Uh-huh. And the exit polling media is there, and they ask you how you voted, oh. and you're giving them information, but you never even cast a ballot. Low-tech hacks. You know, that's yeah. the, the d fucking danger with writing these things. You know, Bob was saying one of the books that he's written in the past, he's like, we didn't mean to, but we accidentally wrote a how to steal an election manual. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. but you know, but so there's the, there's the knowledge, right? So now yeah. everyone has the knowledge. So how do we prevent against these things? Like we've uh, demonstrated that you can actually do this uh -huh. by using method A or method B or method C. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. how do we as a society protect against that and make yeah. sure that that doesn't happen? Yeah, you know, it's... um. It's, it's interesting because with the computerization of, like, voting and the vote count, like, where one ballot could be stolen at a time, now, like, thousands of ballots can be stolen with, like, an algorithm or, like, a mouse click. Um, what it pretty much comes down to is um, hand-counted paper ballots really are the best option. You know, it's, um, you know, and if they're counted by a nonpartisan or bipartisan, I don't even know if bipartisan, because, like, I, I got my thoughts on the two-party system. I think it is awful for accountability. I think it's awful for democracy. I am, um, yep, I got some feelings about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think the best thing is hand-counted paper ballots and then major election reforms where the Secretary of State um, cannot be a co-chair of one of the presidential campaigns. I mean, that seems pretty, pretty simple. Um, you know, just to really open up the loop of accountability so people aren't, so you don't get this closed loop system of accountability where there's um, partisan interests that can regulate themselves. There's a lot to it. So we're talking about the 2004 election, which, as I recall, was the famous or infamous <laughs> hanging Chad. In the oh, that was uh, 2000. Oh, 2000 nice. was hanging Chad. I, I actually lived in Palm Beach County. Oh, man. How was that? Oh, it was hanging Chadsville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some conspiracy theories that are actually... We actually go into one of them in the book where it's like you look at who made the butterfly ballots because the butterfly ballots were so problematic. Like the 
punch hole didn't necessarily match, didn't always like match up with the name. It was all fucked up, but, um, you know, there's, there's some like pretty well, I guess, like well thought out theories that those ballots were made specifically to create the hanging chat issue to push electronic voting machines. Well, that's an interesting theory because, um, you know, so uh, Palm Beach is typically blue. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, to have that kind of issue come up, I guess it's exactly what you're saying is that, you know, well, I guess it's not exactly what you're saying because what you were saying is that they rigged the primaries, Democrats, mm-hmm. sorry, mm-hmm. rigged the primaries, typically speaking. Mm-hmm. And Republicans rigged the general elections, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. But so the issue in in 2000 with the hanging chads, that was the general election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't I don't actually recall how Palm Beach County went on that. But I can tell you, at least since then, that Palm Beach County is typically a very blue county. Mm-hmm. Well, Which, by the way, is where uh, Mar-a-Lago is. Mar-a-Lago. Oh, <laughs> everyone's <laughs> favorite place. Bush won Florida that year, as I recall, the first election. So. Uh-huh. Well, he won yeah. Florida, but I don't know if he won that county. Palm Beach. Yeah. yeah, yeah. the interesting thing about, well, obviously his brother was the governor, uh, the Secretary of State at the time was a co-chair of the Bush-Cheney campaign, and the uh, Fox News, uh, he was a, he, um, uh, Bush's first cousin was the one that actually called the election for him when Bush had a lead that wasn't real because of an error in tabulation that was later walked back. But um, the media called it for Bush prematurely, which solidified essentially like who the president would be because the final vote count got so fucked up. So how much do you think it matters? And I know that um, there's been a lot of uh, effort, at least in the media, if not also legally, Mm -hmm. to kind of um, keep the results on an election day under wraps uh-huh. well, for a period there's a- of time because there's th- this idea that, you know, oh, well, you know, if they all voted for Bush, then, you know, that's mm-hmm. going to change my vote when mm-hmm. I'm standing in line at the ballot box. Well, it's so weird because you've got, like, that sentiment, but then you've also got, like, I mean, now we've got, like, what, like, a year's worth of, like, almost sports broadcasting of the elections about like who's in the lead and who's got the strength and that sort of thing. Well, we, I mean, we didn't corner the market on that. Monty Python was doing that 40 years ago. Oh my gosh. Bless them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes. Um, Ministry of silly walks. All right. So um, let's, um, I wanted to talk about something that it directly relates to, what Sud brought up earlier um, <laughs> about uh, the the C plus or the whatever it was the hacker thing. Right, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I said it a little bit wrong. It's the international obfuscated C code competition. I got I got the O and the C out of the way, so it's the IOCCC. Gosh, I love I love how much of the tech world is open source. I think it's like such a kick ass culture that I don't know. So the, y'all are wizards the, to me. <laughs> Tell us about the Everest study 
um, and because I think that's kind of in the same category as um, what uh, Sub Messenger was talking about. Yeah, the Everest study was um, in initiated by the Secretary of State following um, the 2004 election, I believe. I'm still like looking back at my notes. It was crazy. The book was just written so freaking fast. Um, so that was in response to all of the uh, um, electronic voting machine and electronic vote tabulation malfunctions and like all of the evidence that came up of like interference. And, um, you know, you had like ghost precincts that like mirrored other precincts being counted twice and just, I mean, Ohio was a fucking disaster. So um, the Ohio Secretary of State uh, spearheaded the study into electronic voting machines to essentially see if they were, I guess, like a valid vehicle of carrying out like our right to vote, which actually that that's another interesting point. Apparently, we don't have um, a federal right to vote. It's a, a right to vote is interpreted state by state, which I thought was really interesting. Like it's implied that we have basically our right to vote has been interpreted based on amendments to the constitution, not the constitution itself. And the right to vote is very much um, determined based on what state you're in. I mean, think about it. Like felons can vote in some states, but not others. Um, every state has different voter registration roles. Um, some require like photo ID. Some you have to register in advance. Some have same day registration. Um, but yeah, you basically, and that's a big problem. We've basically got like a bunch of different elections all happening at once. And they're all run by like the secretaries of state, which can have partisan ties. And um, that puts election protection reform largely on the states. And it also is what makes manipulation in swing states so effective. And like why swing states have become such a poignant policy, or not policy, but a strategy in winning elections because the right to vote is interpreted based on states. And if you hone in on swing states with, um, and then get on the inside of interpreting the right to vote, then you can greatly influence an election um, within the bounds of some pretty counterintuitive laws. So, um, but yeah, the Everest study, the Everest study looked at um, voting machines in particular to see like what their security was like. Could they be hacked? Were they reliable to actually record votes correctly? And um, it turned out they could be incredibly easily hacked and um, were not very reliable. And um, the thing, and, and inauditable, which is the big problem, like once, I mean, the big thing is that they don't have a paper trail. Many of these machines didn't have a paper trail. And if the vote was recorded wrong, there was no way to go in and find out what the correct vote actually was. So it really opened the door for a lot of undetectable um, fraud. And um, yeah, and a lot of that undetectable fraud could be um, easily carried out by people on the inside of the process. So I think of this a lot like um, we talk about the um, full body scanners that TSA uses at airports, uh, right? Mm -hmm. So there, like there, there were some a, a lot of concerns early on. You know, they mm -hmm. they cause cancer. Mm -hmm. You you could see your junk. <laughs> it, so they they made some tremendous strides with that technology. Uh huh. 
Um, and yet it is still getting uh, phased out in a lot of places, mm -hmm. uh, especially now because of COVID and this whole mess, but that's <laughs> a separate story. Um, uh -huh. So that that is kind of an interesting thing about like having the paper trail is like, you know, how do you know that this ballot is or isn't valid, right? Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it was 2000. It was slight. It was shortly before the 2004 election. Um, this man named Ethan Gibbs, who was referenced in the book, um, actually came up with a voting machine that printed a receipt, which you know you any cashier any cash register gives you a receipt, right? So you can like make sure that like what was rung up was what you did. Um, so this dude, uh, Bob, interviewed him. Uh, for an article um, about election integrity and voting machines. And again, this man had come up with this concept, I guess, invention of a voting machine that gave you a receipt. And he was hit by a 16-wheeler. Um, and it was weird because Bob actually got the phone call that he was dead, um, or a note that he was dead, and then he called Ethan Gibbs's employer and was like, is Ethan Gibbs dead? And they were like, oh, my God, we just found out. Like, what the fuck is going on? And um, it's interesting. There's there's kind of a little running joke about how many of his witnesses end up, like, mysteriously vanished. Like, there was one that, uh, what's his name, Mike Connell, um, the one who was in charge of smart tech and, like, the tech that ran the Ohio 2004 election um, died in a plane crash shortly after he was deposed. Um, all of this kind of, kind of weird stuff, you know, you wouldn't think that like a receipt could kill you if you, per you know, it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's, and that was like the process of researching it where I'm like, oh, election theft. And then it was like, whoa, all these people are dead. <laughs> that's comforting. Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly. <laughs> Well, whatever. I don't. I don't know if I want to go that deep. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's it's interesting because there's it, it's hard to know like how much to read into it, how much not to read into it. You know, like I, I listen to a lot of conspiracy podcasts. You can connect any fucking dots you want. You can connect any two people you want. Um, you know, and that's something that always comes up writing nonfiction, which is why fiction is like way funner because I can just like make up the connections and say they're true. <laughs> but it's also what makes it also it's also what makes nonfiction fun because it's actually an investigation in real time and I don't have to make up the story it's already out there I just got to figure out what it is. Let's talk about for a second um, another one of the things out of the book that I wanted to talk about is uh, uh -huh. shave and puff. Oh, shave uh, and puff! I could not conceive of that type of tactic. Uh huh. Would you, would you talk about it a little bit and explain to our, our you know, two listeners? Um, oh, my what gosh. <laughs> yes. We, we um, have, we'll like, 3,500 people that listen to this podcast, by the way. So. I'm going to continue to say that because it makes me feel more comfortable about that. So awesome. I know, but, it, like, self-deprecation only goes so far. <laughs> um, you so, yeah, shave and puff. Um, I think Jerry could explain it better than I can because uh, – you know, I was I was working primarily. I was working with Bob, and his is the strip and flip. Uh, um, yeah, it was funny. We we're like, let's call it shave and puff. Let's call it flip and strip. Let's settle on swing. So <laughs> it was pretty saucy over here. But um, yeah, basically the uh, 
the concept is you shave um, the numbers down with voter suppression, of which, you know, looks like kicking people off the voter registration rolls, closing precincts, uh, making information on where to vote and how to vote really obscure. So you, like, shave the numbers down. And then, um, oh, my gosh, I'm feeling like an idiot because I cannot for the life of me remember what Puff is. Um, but the flip part of it... Um, is and I think I think that also ties in with the puff part is um, making the numbers of the desired candidate to win look bigger and a big way that that's done is you do a long slow vote count and wait for a moment where the desired candidate has a slight bulge or like as big of a bulge as possible over the undesired candidate and then that's where the computers go down um some sort of technical glitch happens and like tech support has to come in and fix it and then a couple hours later it comes up and the desired candidate has a much wider margin and um then the election is called well, so there's absolutely nothing phallic going on. It's election theft is a pile of dicks. Like just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually really interesting, though. Like um, the idea that you would do this, um, you know, slow play, uh-huh. and then have yeah. a breakdown, right? And then uh-huh. all of a sudden come back with, you know. Favorable numbers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. is there anything that's maybe going on in between that time that is doing the 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 puff part? Yeah, well, you've got fraction magic software, which uh, is the fractional, you know, three fifths kind of thing. Um, but um, so, if you program it in to count like a specific candidate as like one and a quarter votes, or even like one and like a sixteenth votes, that adds up really fast. So that's a method of puffing. Um, yeah, and then but the long slow count thing too. I was thinking of Super Tuesday that we just saw back in March. Um, so there are fourteen states. Sanders won in three of those states, and the final results weren't reported for over a week. But in all the states that Biden won, those were reported within a couple days. So there was, like, the quick vote count versus the slow vote count. And, well, those, those were landslides, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, they weren't reported for, like, over a week because it was just the slow, like, looking for a, a spot to, like, come in and tamper. Um which is also, I think, a really interesting indication of how, like, you know, in California, so many precincts got closed. Like, thousands of precincts in L.A. County got closed. My sister lives in Long Beach, and she was saying that, you know, they had to wait for three hours or more to vote. And a lot of people had to leave because they had to go back to work or had to go to work or had to go to school or had to pick up their kids. So you're getting um, working class people or voters with families or student voters that, literally can't wait long enough to vote and then you've got um other suburbs like suburbs other neighborhoods places that tend to vote more along the lines i don't even want to say conservatively i just want to i guess say like with the establishment whatever that looks like um you know they've got enough voting machines they've got enough precincts they've got enough time to vote so that's a an example of the shave where you're like making voter suppression happen in ways that kind of we've we've come to see as 
business as usual on election day. You know, we think of like election day is really chaotic and awful, but these are really deliberate um, techniques to deter working class voters. I think that some people don't realize this, but there are states which we call open primary states and states which are closed primary states. Mm-hmm. So um, just to back into this for the listeners so that there's a, a common conception of what's going on here. In a closed primary state, mm-hmm. you cannot vote in a primary election unless you mm-hmm. are a certified member of the party mm-hmm. for the election in which you're voting. Mm-hmm. In an open primary state, anyone and everyone can go vote for whoever they want, uh-huh. regardless That's... of what their choice is going to be. So, um, yeah, so real, real quick, so uh, let's just make sure that that is a, a common understanding leading up to the question. Uh-huh. Okay, so um, my question is, did you come across different scenarios in these open primary mm-hmm. states um, where, you know, potential tampering has happened versus mm-hmm. in the closed primary states where it's pretty easy to make that happen, it seems. Um, it's interesting. So California in 2016, they technically have open primaries, but what they're not told is people that don't have party affiliations get a uh, proprietary ballot, um, which don't get counted until like much later. So a lot of those uh, ballots don't get... or provisional, provisional, excuse me. So they get, um, in a lot of these open primaries, specifically in California in 2016, a lot of people who cast provisional ballots who weren't party affiliated in the Democratic primaries didn't actually end up getting their votes counted. Like they got to go there, they got to vote, it didn't get counted. And um, there's a You know, it does vary from state to state because the right to vote is interpreted differently in different states. But it's important to note that in a lot of these open primaries, um, they're provisional ballots and provisional ballots don't always get counted into, they don't, they don't, unless there's like a runoff or if it's really tight. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Very Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so complicated, and I think um, it's complicated on purpose um, in some ways. I mean, it's hard because it's like, I think in some ways it's complicated on purpose. I think it, in some ways it's just people over time trying to, you know, you know those states that have really dumb laws that make no sense. Like, I grew up in Minnesota, and we always knew about this, like, law where you can't, cross the Minnesota-Wisconsin border with a duck on your head. Like, apparently that was, like, a catastrophe at some point, and you just, like, can't do it anymore. I feel like that probably happened over the course of hundreds of years, or the hundreds of years that we've been having elections in each different state where they're like, oh, no, that'll never happen again. That was awful. And we don't even have a context for that, what that was. Uh, It was a bunch of quacks. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> and dad humor rears his ugly head okay. oh my god he won the dad joke of the night <laughs> I, I, yeah I'm just jealous that he got there before I did alright um, <laughs> alright so you know I got one more thing about the book um, mm-hmm. and that is the logic of the electoral college yes um, and I wanted to touch on that because I think that was pretty significant mm-hmm. so can you can you talk about how that 
you know, how you talk about that in the book and, and, or collate all that in the book. Yeah, so the Electoral College, um, it's interesting because it changes based on census information, um, but basically the Electoral College was a way for um, states with lower populations to not be swept up in the politics of states with larger populations. Um, what that has caused is, the, is swing states, essentially. It's caused states that tend to go either way with a significant number of electoral votes to really be honed in on to become battleground states. And, um, you know, the Electoral College is a numbers game um, in a way that's a lot more, I guess, technical and algorithmic than the popular vote. So um, the process of um, just the ability of presidential candidates to win the Electoral College without the popular vote has really boiled it down to a numbers game and made it really hone in on identifying what the swing states are going to be, getting the right actors in place, getting the right technology in place, getting the right tech support in place, um, campaigning there. Like, it's a very different experience to live in a battleground state versus a state that's either going to go red or blue. And um, I'd say the Electoral College is what caused the swing state phenomenon. And um, it's interesting because the Electoral College was designed so that... Um, you know, candidates wouldn't just campaign in large metropolitan areas and that rural communities and rural states would get to participate in the democratic process. And it's made it so that candidates during the, the run up to the prime, they will, uh, they will have rallies and campaign in states that won't swing to fundraise. But then when it comes to the actual like campaign trail leading up to the general election, it's just the swing states that they go to for the most part. And um, that's definitely based on the math of the Electoral College. Interesting. Um, and thank you uh, for going <laughs> through that. Um, so tell me, uh, you've written another book, a fiction book. Do you want to talk about that at all? Um, I mean, if we want to, um, it's, uh, well, the, the book I wrote, it got published in 2013. It's called Witch. It's a, a fiction novella that I wrote when I was like 21. And, um, recently in, two, well, I guess it was 2015, my friend who is an indie, uh, filmmaker asked me to turn it into, um, a screenplay for a feature length film, which we shot then. And it recently got, um, released to DVD and Blu-ray um, in October of 2019. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it was really fun. It's um, I'd never worked on a film set before, and um, I mostly got coffee, but it was kind of cool. I was there to consult, so I got to have like um, meetings with the actors that were playing the characters that lived in my head, and that was really fun because I got to kind of meet them not necessarily meet them halfway, but talk to them about, like, who they felt their character was, like, what their motivations were, like, what they were into. Like, there's an alien in it, and he's like, what kind of spaceship do I have? Is it, like, a fixer-upper? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> so that was a really fun experience. But, um, yeah, that book, um, it's a psychedelic realism novella. It's very queer, um, as is the, the movie. Um, yeah, just... It, it was it was really fun. It's uh, out on Amazon now. It's available on a DVD and Blu-ray, and it's going to be on demand pretty soon. And um, if you're looking for something very like 
cult film inspired. Um, it's low budget, but we did a really good job of like integrating practical effects. We actually had the special effects guy as an extra, and whenever he looked like he hated his life, we'd like make an adjustment or like work it out. <laughs> so nice. Well, that's say the uh, tell us the title. Which. Which yes, yeah, and it was actually uh, based on this game of make believe that um, I was living at this like eco village in Oregon at the time, and um, one of my uh, neighbors had this daughter who was six, and she always I got like kind of sucked into this game of make believe with her called Witch, where she was like, "There's an evil witch, and she's trying to chase us forever," and she was like you know, one of those kids who's like, I'm going to play with you whenever I want, so I'm going to make up this, like, really compelling and kind of creepy story that you're going to play with me. And um, the the book was definitely based on that game. And um, the girl who I was kind of babysitting at the time was actually kind of disappointed she didn't get to play herself. So <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I didn't know it was going to be a movie and that you were going to be into acting. Sorry. <laughs> You never know what's going to happen. You know, you, you write something, you never know what's going to come of it. Sure, welcome to real life, kiddo. Um, <laughs> right, you're, so cool. you're too old. <laughs> well, it's really interesting that um, kind of the the barrier to entry to mm -hmm. be able to produce good content mm -hmm. has dropped at like... Um, an exponential scale over the last, you know, 10, 15 years mm -hmm. as our computers get better and mm -hmm. uh, people are taking more of an interest in producing original content that is outside of the, the, the realm of the big studios and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's a really cool and empowering thing. And I'm probably just, um, proselytizing right now, but uh, we were kind of talking about this uh, earlier on how um, because you're doing a uh, a podcast thing now, right? Mm -hmm. Did we uh, talk yeah. about that already? I can't remember um, because we had a false start or three. Oh yeah, we, <laughs> talked, we talked about it in the false start. Um, but yeah, it was but with which um, the filmmakers, one of them was um, a cinematography professor from the University of South Carolina, and he actually has a background in particle physics. So the shit that he was able to do, like with light and things, was like amazing. Like you'd look at the set, and then you'd look at the set through his um, screen, and it was just a totally different world. That's really cool. Mm hmm. Yeah, it was fun. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm currently working uh, on um, I'm an organizer with this nonprofit film camp for kids, and obviously we can't do it this year because COVID. But um, we're putting together a resource list and like tutorials geared towards youth filmmakers for um, different filmmaking technologies that they can access. Like we're gonna do like a whole thing about how to make a movie with your smartphone, and then like iMovie, and just how. Yeah, how accessible it's come to produce good content if you've got, like, a concept for it. I think that is a reflection of power to the people, uh, mm -hmm. touching on what the messenger said earlier. I think that's a pretty, that's one of the better parts of techno, modern technology, right? As is, everyone has a recording device in their, I mean, well, it, there's pluses and minuses because we wouldn't have all this documentation of all these police abuses and, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, met bad actors um, at various protests that are deliberately trying to, you know, uh, mess things up, so to speak, or create strife, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the actual peaceful protesters. Um, but the flip side is, is, you know, they have the possibility to listen to you or, or you know, watch you through the camera, whatever they want, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a... Um, it's the garden of uh, good and evil all over, right? Oh yeah. Your uh, your phone is actually the serpent. Yeah. Right. Well, so um, we were talking earlier about Zoom, and so just completely apropos, um, both of my daughters are kind of into theater production um, mm-hmm. by their own volition, and uh, one of them just did a complete production that was written and produced by the students Uh completely over zoom conferencing that is so cool so it like an entire it's like an hour and 10 minutes of content that like these kids went and put together and you know like they came up with their own props and they recorded themselves and and you know like somebody was taking the the video and putting it side by side and um so that 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 gets into like one of my pet peeves we're talking about uh electioneering and Mm -hmm. stealing elections and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so one of my pet peeves is that i believe this is this is my personal opinion Mm -hmm. but i believe that um, we, the people, quote unquote, have been robbed of representation since mm-hmm. around 1913 mm-hmm. when uh, Congress decided on their own that they would no longer expand um, the amount of representation with respect to the people. They would oh. just use. Oh, so it sounds like you didn't know this. No. Oh, so this is interesting. Yes. Cool stuff. All right. So, um, so after the 1910 census, um, Congress decided that they were no longer going to increase the amount of representatives in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that was locked down in a law in 1913 that was signed off on. And, you know, the, the people that were like, you know, freaking out about it were obviously freaking out about it, but that is why. Congress no longer grows in size. So from from the beginning of the country up until 1910, Mm -hmm. with every subsequent U.S. census, the amount of representatives allocated to the various states would increase or or decrease as appropriate. I'm not sure if there was ever a case where it decreased, but it would certainly increase as appropriate in order to maintain a level of representation to the people. Mm-hmm. That plays directly into the Electoral College when we're talking about uh, voting for president, because uh-huh. the electoral votes for president are based exactly on the amount of congressional representation, right? So you got 535, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's 100 senators and 435 representatives. Uh-huh. Those the that so those number of representatives from the various states make up the electoral college, and for the last 
90 years or whatever, um, that amount has not changed. So as the size of the population has increased, sure. the number of people that are actually eligible to cast a final and deciding vote for the president has decreased proportionally. Wow. Man, I swear, like, half of the legislation they pass is just to protect their own fucking jobs. It, it, I, I'm yeah. absolutely certain where it is. Yeah. Actually, when I was 15, I um, did the PAGE program with the uh, Minnesota State House of Representatives. So I went there for, like, a week and was, like, a PAGE in the House of Representatives there. And literally, that's what I learned, that when Congress... Um, when when the state congress couldn't decide on something and they had to like extend the legislative session they got overtime pay and the only thing that they voted on was to raise their own salaries in the time i was there none of them had like read a bill they were just putting it off until they could get overtime so that gets <laughs> even more interesting yeah okay? so when we talk about the bill of rights mhm mm okay so there were originally 12 proposed amendments uh -huh. okay, that were the Bill of Rights. And what we think of as the First Amendment was actually the third proposed amendment. Oh. Mm -hmm. So the first two amendments, and, you know, absolutely correct me in the comments or whatever if I'm wrong on this, but the first two amendments were, number one, to... Uh, and so this is called Article the First. And mm -hmm. if you wanted to go Google this, um, and you could find out how they totally screwed the pooch on this, like in like eight different ways. But so Article the First was originally um, a proposal to say, hey, you know, we screwed up. We need to make sure that the level of representation mm -hmm. in the House of Representatives is congruent to the population of the country that they are representing. And then Article the Second, which got passed in like, I think like 1986 or something like that, uh -huh. as like the 25th Amendment or something, something like that, whatever the 28th or whatever it is, that was, hey, you guys can't vote your pay. Yeah. Without, without an interruption in um, the cycle of Congress. So, uh -huh. like, you can't just give yourself a pay raise. Uh-huh. And so that finally passed in, uh, I believe it was the 80s. Mm-hmm. But it had been around for... But it had been around since, like, 1780 or something like that. So there had to be, like, an interruption to do it? Well, so it's a constitutional amendment, right? So mm -hmm. you have to have um, the appropriate number of states ratifying on that article in order to make it part of the Constitution. So I haven't passed the ERA. Oh, right, for the for federal. Interesting. Yeah, I'm getting schooled here. It's great. Um, yeah, because um, that's what that new Netflix, there's a movie or a series coming out um, about um, Phyllis Schlafly. I cannot say that lady's name. Um, Schlafly, yeah, that sounds Schlafly. right. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like two F. Vote, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that the ERA vote, uh, the ERA amendment has not mm -hmm. passed either, despite having been around yep. since 72. 
I know, it's so. ridiculous. And then, um, you know, I mean, just the last week with um, the Supreme Court, like, strike, you know, voting that you can't discriminate, like, employment based on, like, being transgender or gay, like, that that's something that just happened is kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I don't think that that just happened. I think that they are clarifying, and, and mm-hmm. so that is part of the equal protection. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right? So yeah, but I think I mean, that yeah, happened a long time because, ago. Yeah, yeah. But, well, yeah, the, the, the legalizing um, same-sex marriage, I think, is was a huge step forward uh, mm-hmm. for, rights for this country. And I think that's this is just a refinement uh, of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I, it's like, okay, no, 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 you're people too. Okay, you're people too in this way. Not that way, but in this way, yes. If we just get rid of that for corporations, we'd be all good. Um, oh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so just to rephrase that, it has not been illegal for a long time. Mm-hmm. Just there were, you know, states and municipalities that were saying it was illegal and the Supreme Court hasn't been willing to step up and say, no, that is actually yeah, illegal. You're full of it. Mm-hmm. But that's also allowed a lot of places like that are super fundamentalist Christian to, you know, discriminate actively uh, against, you know, LBGTQ people, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But then again... If I was LBGTQ, I'm not sure I would want to work for one of those people because those tend to be not really tolerant people. Um, but uh, I digress. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think, well, based on, I think that was really good that um, Sub Messenger brought that up about, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a lot of proposed amendments that just never get off the ground or get off the ground even mm-hmm. hundreds of years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff in in the government that kind of, Mm-hmm. I don't know, but, it's a moving behemoth. Right, well, and I think that goes back to, like, a lot of election protection legislation that we should have by now that's lacking is because it moves so slowly and because, you know, riders get attached, conditions get attached, like, you know, bills don't get read, they get written by, like, you know, it's it's complicated. It's, it's a very slow-moving process, and then... There's a, it's kind of like whenever a bill passed, it's like having side effects for a prescription. Like there's a bunch of other shit in there and it, it seems like it <laughs> takes a while to story. That is, out. that is the best characterization I've ever heard. That was well done. Thank you. Just came up with that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a slow moving process and there's a lot of like things that are intuitive, like the ERA, for example, that it's like, why hasn't this passed yet? And the answer is probably a lot more complicated than can be given credit for based on talking points, you know? Um, You know, just like every bit of legislation, which is why it's hard to, like, boil down someone's voting record to, like, what bills they voted for and not because they're all so complex and have so many conditions attached to them. Yes, and it's, you know, it's a very active tactic in in during elections to... Point out that you know politician A didn't vote for Bill B and Bill yeah. B was great, but you find out later that he didn't vote for it because it was all this pork that ran completely counter to you know his constituency or his interest or totally, whatever. Yeah. somewhat vindicating. Um, <laughs> I think that's you know some good, really good points touched on here tonight. So definitely, uh, um, I do want to talk to you about like uh, vote, the vote by mail issues. Um, 
you know, just because it's been such a, a talking point in the world lately, you know, how to, how do we vote with COVID? Um, you know, how Ooh. do we vote without dying kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, let's, um, let's do it. Cause uh, like that, that's a very interesting and topical conversation that I think that we need to have. So if you're, if you're down. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I think it's, um, I think vote by mail is, uh, the biggest problem with vote, but I mean, the best thing about vote by mail is it protects public health and that's like what's most important right now. But I think the big problem with vote by mail is that integ uh, election integrity watchdogs rely on exit poll data to measure whether an election's valid or not. And with vote by mail, there can't be exit polls. So that yardstick that election protection watchdogs you to used to measure whether votes are being counted, whether elections are getting carried out in an honest way um, doesn't exist with vote by mail. And that's a huge problem. Um, some benefits, um, election day voter suppression tactics like closing precincts and purposely giving wrong and misleading information about precincts, skimping on voting machines in different precincts, uh, vote tampering, electronic voting machines, and all of the shit that comes along with that. That all gets prevented. Um, but you can still, um, I mean, there's like, in 2012, over a quarter million absentee ballots were rejected, mostly because they weren't submitted on time. Um, there's also... You know, you can break the chain of custody, like what we saw in Michigan, um, spoiled ballots, lost ballots. There's still um, voter registration roll issues and um, vote tabulation machine issues. But I think the biggest problem with vote by mail would be not being able to have those exit polls to measure whether the election was valid or not. And that's really scary to me. I don't know what the solution is because, um, you know, I'm we're we're in the middle of a pandemic so it's like how does democracy carry on amidst a pandemic but also how does democracy carry on in the midst of such rampant election tampering um so, so we're kind of starting I'm, from ground one our square one with all this i think that's the first legitimate argument against vote my mail i've ever heard that wasn't some manufactured bs i, I find that very interesting mm -hmm. yeah um, i agree but i, I would, agree also point out that um, the very idea or the existence of exit polls mm -hmm. really did not take off until there was electronic media, right? Because, you know, back in the day when there was just newspapers, uh, uh -huh. even like pre-telegraph, right? Uh -huh. the exit polls would have no significance because of... Mm -hmm. The delay in reporting, right? But by, by the time, no, that they no. I mean, you know, like you go back to the '80s, and, and exit polls were a big thing. We would stay up all night watching election results. I said oh, yeah. before the advent of electronic media. So I'm like talking the town crier on the horse or something. Uh, well, I mean, fifty like, years ago, I, Betamax is electronic media. Then you know, I don't even know what that is. A hundred. <laughs> oh, well done. Stab me in the heart. Stab me in the heart. Very well done. Next, you'll tell me you've never heard of a laser disc. Um, I think I've heard. I've heard of them, but I've never seen them. Oh my goodness! Uh, Nobody has. That's why they're not a thing anymore. Yeah. Oh. I had a friend who had a ton, actually. So we had two. Biggest CD you've ever seen in your life. Um, but um, I mean, I'm not talking a track here. Let's not be too dinosaurish. Uh, um, 
She's going to keep her mouth shut on that one. (laughs) Now I've lost my point. Never mind. I'm going. Uh, (laughs) Um, Oh, were you talking about uh, vote by mail? Yes, vote by mail. So, so that's that's really interesting. And uh, so, Jampy was saying um, that's the first valid argument that he's heard. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. So against vote by mail is that there is this watchdog process that mm-hmm. is able to call out when there is potential election mm-hmm. fraud going on, right? Yeah, and that's kind of where it's like, okay, these numbers aren't adding up. We need to look at this closer. And we can't do that with vote by mail. And I'm absolutely not advocating. Well, I don't really know what I'm advocating at this point because I don't think it's, I mean, it changes, the world changes like every fucking week, I swear. So I don't even know what November is going to look like. Like we'll be covered in murder hornets and aliens. I will tell you what I think, honestly, I think honestly, and we would, we would, as Americans, have to swallow our pride to a certain extent. But we should have outside, independent entities do uh, election monitoring. In my opinion, right? Absolutely. Whether they be international or even just you know non-party affiliated individuals within the country, but um, and and even like to the extent that they're there when they open up the the stuff, the the vote, uh-huh. right? Oh my so gosh, that, that would be great. Yeah, well, I, I think, think, I think we do. The, I think we do have that. I, I don't know if it's legally binding. But we have very limited. We definitely amount. have like UN kind of people coming in and and watching what we do. That's been going on for. We do, and there's some There's some cases of them documenting, um, you know, in, inappropriate, uh, you know, uh, actions, so to speak. So. Uh, I mean, I mean, you touched on the, in the book, Jimmy Carter said in 2013, you know, uh, mm-hmm. democracy is broken in America because of mm-hmm. election tampering, essentially. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just so easy to get only partisan people alone in the room with the vote count. And that's horrifying. Um, no, I think outside, um, I think an outside observer would be great, you know, and there's, there's just this whole I don't know, I get really frustrated because it's like the only conspiracy allowed is Russian tampering, and it's like pushed so hard whenever anything that's inconvenient happens, and, you know, through all this research, through all of Bob's work, it's like, it's American as apple pie, this election theft, it's definitely uh, the calls coming from inside the house, and I I think outside um, eyes on it would be great. It's just so hard because, you know, America is such a central... Um, figure in the you know global geopolitical everything so it's like i don't it's like having it's like how do you get a fair trial in like a highly publicized case i do think putin has uh, he, he does his work before the election like i don't know that how much vote tampering per se there is by russia mm-hmm. but i mean it would be really, really bad if he was actually better at messing with our elections than we are. I mean, honestly. It's like, I'll watch. I got this. I'm sure we are much better at, than him at that, honestly. Oh, my God. I'm sure he's oh, no, just no, like... No, no. So, we are, I mean, we already kind of covered this. I mean, it's the campaigns that are going uh-huh. out and hiring these outside entities to uh-huh. do, um, you know, the, I don't want to say ballot stuffing, but are are hiring people that are outside just because they're people that are outside like they're like they're doing um these campaigns that um 
you know, psychological campaigns and whatever that they're going in. So, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, technically that's the Russians that are doing it, but I mean, they were the lowest bidder. So, you know, it's not like, yeah. it's not like a targeted, like, Honestly, I think cry in Russia is, it was weird seeing the Democrats cry Russia and it's like, y'all ran a horrible campaign and you're running a horrible campaign again and you're going to blame it on Russia because you weren't like attentive to your voters. Like, give me a fucking break. Putin's like sitting over there like that was easy. They did it to themselves. That's right. <laughs> they do all the hard work for us. He's just sitting on the other side of the fan while shit's hitting it. Like, oh, you missed a spot. Oh, you got it. <laughs> like, yeah. Nah. I think. I think like the whole crying Russia thing has just been infuriating. Yeah. Well, I think yeah the I troll farm thing with the you know, have the twenty four three shifts and twenty four seven is not underestimated. But that's all pre. They all do that via uh, social media because it's super easy, right? Uh Um, They don't have to make any kind of serious investment in anything other than paying essentially Uh a small army to go and do drone work, but that's Uh still cheaper and also a a lot lower risk Uh than kind of foreign intervention, you know, where they've got somebody over here doing stuff, right? It's just, Uh it's much it's got a much higher uh, cost-benefit ratio to him tampering. Mm-hmm. So, and the point being, there's no doubt that there's a lot more local interference going on than forward interference in our elections. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I was, obviously, I'm from Minneapolis, so I've been following the situation pretty closely, and I noticed as soon as the... Uh, outside agitators trope came in and I actually listened to a podcast about the history of the outside agitators trope um you know because well first of all like outside agitators couldn't have come in fast enough it was like it's a trope that's used to disempower like uh uprisings from within it's basically a way to say like our establishment's fine like we weren't having any problems. No one was oppressed until these outside agitators showed up and like riled everyone up. And um, I think that's, we see that a lot with elections because it's a way to, you know, say the system's fine. The system's fine. We don't have to like, no, no one gets incriminated. No work has to be done. No promises have to be broken. Like nothing has to change. So it protects property and security and it just completely puts the blame on the outsider instead of forcing a close evaluation of our own systems and our own our own accountability. So it's basically a lazy way out, I think. Well, it's always going to be easier to uh, cast dispersions on a nebulous group, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if you can do that convincingly... Yeah, it's the fern. Xenophobia. Ferner. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a, one of the most tried and true uh, methods of whipping up any kind of loyalty, um, you know, that you need is, is find a group that you can excoriate to the general mm-hmm. public, a, mm-hmm. a group outside, you know, the main body of the populace, right? And uh-huh. then go at them uh, vociferously in order to um, create a common enemy, which will mobilize whatever Mm-hmm. You know, voting base, power base, whatever you're you're going after, right? So uh-huh. very effective and time, you know, a tried and true method. 
Yeah, you know, and you see, like, really intelligent people, like, really buying into it. And, yeah, it's like you make the enemy vague enough but specific enough so you could, like, look to it but not really identify who it is or what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, um, with Trump, it's, you know, Mexicans one week and uh, liberals the next and all that, right? You've got the chosen uh, narrative that you're going to pursue. But the the idea is to create that us versus them mentality, right? Yeah. Which has definitely been created very effectively in this nation. Oh, yeah. Uh, on a variety of levels. Repeatedly. Yes. All right. So, once again, Rebecca Little uh, <laughs> with Wing, our, our um, elections. <laughs> our American elections legitimate. Our American uh, elections legitimate. I like my memory. Um, I want to thank uh, Rebecca so much for coming on tonight. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. And also, I, I learned a lot, so it was very beneficial. I learned a lot, too. Thanks so much for having me. And truth be told, this is my very first interview ever. I Again, I usually go straight. So, you know, being like the author out front is very new to me. So thank you all so much for being the first interview. <laughs> oh, it's definitely our pleasure. Thank you very much for coming along and uh, mm-hmm. enjoying the ride. <laughs> it's been fun. Y'all are great. And good night. Good night.